Hey guys, I'm Joelle. And I'm Peggy Rad. And I'm so excited because we have a great guest here for you today. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. Welcome, guys, to the Knife Hour. Today is a huge, splendid, awesome day because today <laughs> we have Tony Richmond in the studio with us. And I'm so excited. If you guys are unfamiliar, you need to get familiar. Um, Tony Richmond has been making movies since the 60s. He's had a diverse career, as you're likely to find. His work includes David Bowie's The Man Who Fell to Earth, The Rolling Stones documentary Sympathy for the Devil, Legally Bond, The Sandlot, Men of Honor, Sean Penn's directorial debut, The Indian Runner, John Tucker Must Die, Candyman, and the 70s classic Don't Look Now. Please join us in welcoming Cinematography Chair of NYPO, Los Angeles, Tony Richmond. Yay! <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today. Um, we always start with the same question because I find it uh, a really good place to start for people. And that question is, when did you fall in love with film? Oh, when I was a very young kid. Um, my dad, who was a taxi driver, um, loved two things in life. Football, or soccer, and the movies. Um, and uh, we went to the movies twice a week and I fell madly in love with the movies. Um, and I'd see any any sort of movie that was possible, you know. I mean, there were, and in those days, you saw two movies. I mean, a B movie and, a, and an A movie, or the, the, the feature movie. And it was great. So I, I fell madly in love with the movies and decided that somehow that is what I wanted to do. I mean, I didn't have, have any knowledge of, of how to make movies. I didn't have any. Uh, I didn't know anybody in the movie business. Um, and I left school when I was 15, which you could in those days legally, because then after, after 15 in England, you went to higher education. Um, and I managed to get a job um, at Pathé News um, oh. as a runner, running up and down Wardour Street with cans of film. Um, and I thought I was in the movie business. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the start of it. Were there any particular filmmakers that inspired you to... I, you know, the thing that, I mean, I fell in love with, with cinematography or the photography of movies um, basically from watching the movie Shane. Okay. It was a fantastic, fan, fantastic visual movie, and I just loved that movie. Um, I mean, very slow by today's standards, but it's a stunning movie. And then, you know, after Pathé News, um, I managed to, uh, I left there after a, a couple of years, and then I managed to get onto some movies. I, I, I went to a studio called Danziger Brothers, which... Um, was a small studio in Borehamwood near Associated British Cinemas, where all the big studios were in MGM. And th- there were two Americans who actually owned um, the Mayfair Casino, which is a, a legitimate casino, but I'm sure they were probably laundering money somehow. And <laughs> I managed to get onto the feature unit, and we shot one feature every seven days. I mean, they're absolute wow. total rubbish. Wow. <laughs> they were the B features. But it was a great learning experience. I mean, you know, just as a young assistant cameraman, just a great learning experience. Wow. You assisted on, like, some really big films. I was lucky, yes. Um, I guess the first really big film I did was um, From Russia With Love, yeah. the James Bond picture, the yeah. second James Bond picture. Um, I was lucky to get on that. Someone someone was ill, and I took over uh, on a couple of, for a couple of days and then just stayed on. You know, It was one of those, just a, really a lucky break. And then after that, I managed to... Uh, do a couple of other movies. I then joined Hammer Studios and did some of those great Hammer horrors. Did four of those Hammer horrors as an assistant cameraman oh. with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Um, and then, and everybody was permanently employed at the Hammer Studios except for the cinematographers. They would come in, and one of these cinematographers, John Wilcox, who took me under his wing, um, he then took me to Israel on a huge movie called Judith uh, with Peter Finch and Sophie Loren. So we were in Israel for about eight months. Wow. 
and that's where I met Nicholas Rogue. And then he, you know, I, I like, I hung out with his crew. He was, he was shooting the second unit, but his his crew were, were really a lot of fun <laughs> <laughs> and much younger than the crew. So I hung with them, and then he. Uh, we became very friendly. Uh, um, more, he was more like a father figure to me. But um, you know, he he said, "Listen, I'm leaving." He left a couple of months early, and he said, "I'm going to do a movie. I can't take my 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 regular crew, but I'm sure I'm going to take you." And I can't tell you what it was. And when I got back from uh, Israel to London, it turned out to be Doctor Shivago, oh, wow, and that was amazing. the start of everything grand happening to me there. You know, just a. Um, just wonder, I was in the right place at the right time. How wow. old were you when all of this was happening? Uh, oh, I mean, I'm 18, 19, 20. Wow, that's so cool. Um, and then I think I was 20 on Chivago, yeah. Wow. So and We were on that for 52 weeks. Were you with Nicholas Rowe? Because I know a lot of people, that's kind of uh, their introduction to you is through his work. And I'm curious, was that mentorship just, you know, he was a older, cooler guy who knew what he was doing? or He was a young cinematographer. Um, and he, um, you know, so I went on, he, 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 David Lean had insisted having the operator on focus while he had Lawrence Arabia. Mm. So I went on as a second assistant cameraman, or lo- clapper load as we call it in those days. Now they're called second assistants. Um, and unfortunately, uh, there were, Nick got fired after a month. Um, um, and then um, Freddie Young took over. And in those days, you know, if you were part of a camera crew, if the DP left or fired or got whatever, you went with him. So I was going mm. to leave with Nick, and he said, "No, you've got to stay on. It would be good for your career." And I very begrudgingly stayed on. And um, David Lean sort of knew that I didn't like him because he'd fired Nick, but he went out of his way, and really took me under his wing. And I just learned so much from that man. You know, I mean, he's a brilliant, brilliant director. And, um, and then at the end of, um, it's, it's all weird, a lot of weird happenings. At the end of um, Dr. Shivago, after the 52 weeks of shooting, um, I was driving around Madrid, um, and then there was a hooter behind me. Bing, 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 and I looked around, it was Nick Rogue. He said, follow me. So <laughs> I followed him, and it's straight to the apartment, in the apartment building where I had an apartment, and he was in the same one, and he was just about to start um, a movie called... Uh, a funny thing happened all the way to the forum, oh. and that was fan- so. I went on 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 that with him, um, and that was fantastic. That was with all the greats: uh, Jack Guilford, um, Zero Mostel, Phil Silvers, um, just uh, Buster Keaton. I think that movie killed Buster Keaton because in every shot, <laughs> he was he was running around the Seven Hills of Rome. He never stopped running. Oh <laughs> my goodness! Died just after that, which is terribly oh, sad. No. Um, but anyway, so I was on that, and then after that we came back and did um, Fahrenheit, 4, Fahrenheit 451, which again was with Julie Christie. And Francois Truffaut, right? Uh, pun? And Francois Truffaut. And Francois directed, Truffaut, yes. yeah. Fan, absolutely fantastic Truffaut. Absolutely fantastic. Um, and then I started pulling focus towards the end of that. And then after Fahrenheit 451, we uh, went on to Casino Royal, but the one with Woody Allen. <laughs> Um, playing 007 and with all the, you know, Peter Sellers and everybody was in that movie it was absolutely crazy just dreadful but it was such a lot of fun to do um, and then after that I pulled focus on Far From The Madding Crowd which Nick was the DP on and um, that was that was the, so at the end of Far From The Madding Crowd um, 
Nick came back to America, or not came back, went to America to shoot a picture for Dick Lester. And I obviously couldn't do it because of the American unions, and why would they take a focus book? Yeah. So in those days, you know, as I say, if the DP didn't work, you didn't work, so that's going to mm -hmm. be out of, out of work. But then John Schlesinger liked me, um, and he was a brilliant director. And we became very friendly, John and I. Um, and I particularly liked him because he, had a, he owned um, one of the better restaurants in London in Covent Garden. So I used to go there with him and his boyfriend and have these wonderfully free, great free dinners <laughs> and lunches. And then um, the Six-Day War in Israel started in June 67. And he asked me to go and shoot a documentary for him. So I went out two days after the war with John, and Wolf Mankiewicz, a writer, and we shot some incredible footage of the aftermath of that Six-Day War. And, you know, once again, it was being in the right place at the right time. And we came back, and I, I certainly didn't want to be a, a documentary cinematographer, so I thought I'd wait for Nick. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do. Because um, although there was television in England, in those days, all the te all television stations had their own... Like, the BBC had its own crew. There were no freelancers. It was only the movie business that was freelance. And... Um, John had a friend, a, a, a very old, a wonderful British director called Basil Dearden, who made some amazing movies. And John said, you know, he was about to start a new movie, and he said, you should use Tony. He's a great new cinematographer. And I got a call one night from Basil Dearden, where I was living, and I, actually I was living and looking after Nick Rogue's flat whilst he was in America. And Basil came on and introduced himself, and I introduced myself, and he said, look, I'm just about to start this movie. It's with... Uh, David Hemmings, and we're going to shoot in, start in New York, and shoot uh, in Lebanon and London, and I'd like you to do it. I thought he was asking me to be the, uh, to be the camera operator. <laughs> and I said, no, who's going to be the DP or, or cameraman? And I said, well, you. And I said, no, no, who's going to be the lighting cameraman, as we were called in those days? And he said, you. And I said, oh. <laughs> and he said, do you want to do it? And I said, well, I'd like to, but I've never done that before. He said, would you want to have a go? And I said, yes. And that was... Wow. The rest is history. And then after that movie, um, a couple of extraordinary things happened. I mean, um, when the movie was over, they, 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 in those days, they would sometimes bring in a title company to do the, the main titles. And they hired this company called Chambers and Partners, which also made television commercials. And they were pushing a, a very young director um, to do some commercials, and he was going to direct the titles. And they thought it would be good, as, as it was with the actors, the cinematographer who shot the movie, um, shot the titles. And it turned out to be Michael Lindsay Hogg. And we became great buddies after the four days of shooting. And he said, what are you doing next weekend? I said, well, nothing. He said, do you want to come and shoot Jumping Jack Flash with the Rolling Stones? And, me? Oh and that started gosh. all that, you know. And then we would, then Michael and I became great buddies, and we did, I did the rock and roll circus with him, and the Beatles let it be with him, you know, so... That was that. So you've just described a ginormous body of work. And then one more rock and roll thing I did yes, was, the, was the Who's The Kids Are All Right, the compilation movie. I did a lot of the live action for that. And I thought that that, that all took place in sort of, sort of 68, early 69. And I thought, you know, I didn't want to do any more rock and roll because I didn't think I could ever beat those three groups, the Stones, mm -hmm. the Beatles and the Who. So. Yeah. Huge body of work, like you were saying, by just... Right place at the right time, as well as being prepared yeah. and mm. being willing to take on. Yeah, yeah I mean, you, yes. I mean, you have to have a lot of luck in this business because there's so many people out there that really have the credentials, have the talent, both in actors, actresses, cinematographers, directors, but just 
you need that little bit of luck. But I mean, you'll get it if you pursue, if you persevere. Sure. You've got to keep persevering and trying and trying and trying. You have to be out there. And as a cinematographer, just keep shooting. Shoot anything. Shoot, shoot, shoot. Because you'll always learn. You'll always learn. Right. Well, okay, so at first you were, you were open to taking all of these uh, projects, anything that came your way. Further down the line, when you had gotten a name for yourself, we see that your choices are still very diverse, from Candyman to Lily Blonde to The Sandlot. Is your approach to these films different, and if so, how? Well, the approach is different, but, I mean, um, it's just if I like the script, really. I mean, the, I mean, it's been different in the last five years because there's not the massive amount of work there used to be where you'd get off of two or three movies and you could choose the movie you wanted to do. I mean, um, that doesn't happen anymore. It's you do what you're offered sort of thing, really. Um, but in the early days, it was if I liked the script, and, and I don't think that... Um, you know, I, I, I like everything. I like comedy. I love comedy. Um, I like drama. Um, I like it. I like it all. But I mean, I like kids' movies. There's nothing wrong. I think kids' movies are great, except most of them are dreadful. I mean, they've got to be good for the parents too, and that's what really I loved about the Sandlot because the kids loved it, mm. but parents absolutely loved it because it reminded them of their youth. And that movie still holds up today because... Oh, absolutely. I just saw an it, outdoor screening of it recently. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. time, it's timeless. It's timeless. As mm-hmm. long as kids are frightened of dogs and they play Little League, it's going to be... It's wonderful. <laughs> right. But, I mean, so, yeah, so you've got to have... Um, you know, it's just... it's what, and, and also, as a cinematographer, the only thing that matters, really, is the story. We're a slave to the story. And, his, and the cinematographer's job, he or she is to put the director's vision on the screen and hopefully take that vision a little further and make it even better. I wanted to ask you, um, as I said earlier, you did Sean Penn's uh, Indian Run, which is his directorial debut. Right. At that point, you're kind of a seasoned vet. Did you feel any additional responsibility to helping him along? Or, or how do you approach working with a, a first-time director? Is it different? Well, you know, it just depends. I mean, some direct. I mean, like, I've worked with a lot of first-time directors. I, I have to say, for me... The best ones have all been actors because they really know how to handle actors. I mean, I shot Sean's first movie, Angelica Houston's first movie, Tony Goldwyn's first movie, all great movies. But, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of the younger directors come from either colleges or film schools, mm-hmm. um, commercials, um, you know, um, rock videos, and all have wonderful eyes, uh, you know, and, and a great visual sense. Uh, um, but sometimes they're a little intimidated by actors, and actors can be intimidating because they sort of they sort of speak a different language to us, you know. And um, every actor needs directing. I mean, um, basically because you're, the director is a mirror to the actor, you know, um, mm-hmm. to keep them on the straight level. So, so they they for me have been the best, you know, um, and you know both with all of them. I mean, and we, we all I got on fabulously with all those three directors. I never, I've never actually had a bad time with a director. I've been very lucky. Because you hear horror stories, but I've had yeah, a right. wonderful time, yeah. Um, you, sorry. I was just going to ask, do you attribute that to, to your approach? Or you, because you're more concer- your biggest concern is the vision, do you think maybe that helps? Because I've heard from directors horror stories of DPs who you know, are like, it, the shot has to be this way. And it, well, that's, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of DPs. Like, that's ridiculous because mm-hmm. you, work, you work for the director. And the, I mean, you know, sometimes with a younger or, or a newer director or a director that's come from another medium, you might, I might feel there's a better way of doing it or the mm-hmm. shot would be better if we moved over here. But it's very important that you just take him, he or she, around the corner and whisper in there, what about this if we did it this way? Because... Mm-hmm. 
you can't let the crew know that's going on because there can only be one captain of the ship and that is the director and you've got to support him and then if the director says oh, well that's a wonderful idea we'll do that yeah or if he or she says that's not so, I know I don't want to do that then that's the end of it you don't keep harping well it would be better it would be better it would be better if we were over here you know? but that's me I mean everybody's different I mean I've worked with directors who've had horrendous times mm. with DPs on their last picture horrendous times um can you remember a scene or, yeah, maybe a scene that you had a challenge making and then you were really satisfied at the end with? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, there's... Um, like actually, there was a major pain. Strangely enough, on the last movie I shot, really? the last Wimpy Kid movie, yeah, we had a... Do you know what a spinning jenny is? No. Well, it's a ride. They, in England, we used to call it the rotor. It's a, it's a, it's a circular ride. You go in. And the rotor, the thing, this thing would spin, and the floor Who fell away. Oh, yeah, that, and it's you can't pull yourself. That's up. right, and you can't. It's, a, it's, it's spinning so fast. Yes. The centrifugal force keeps yes. you back against the wall. So, we had this scene um, in the last movie. So, uh, whilst we were in Atlanta in prepping, we and a fair, a, a major fair was coming to near where we were shooting. We we're going to shoot there for a week. But someone had one of these spinning jennies in the middle of nowhere, and then so we went off and we saw it. And it was horrible. I mean, the ride was horrible. I mean, it just <laughs> anyway, um, and it had like a, you know, a big sort of. Uh, it's open at the top, but it had a, like a for better like a silk, a okay. white silk. And we said, well, you know, because there's no way, the 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 um, it, if you're inside, it doesn't look like it's spinning. Especially if you're in the centre where the driver is, because there's mm. no centrifugal force there, and you know we were thought we would somehow we'd have to find a way of doing this. So I said, well, we just take the if we take the top off, take that that silk off, we can get a, um, a technocrane and come in and go high, and we see it spinning. From, great. So then we found out later that you couldn't take that silk off because okay. the oh, reason, yeah. just in case anybody flies out, it keeps them in there. Oh. <laughs> it's a major panic set in. What are you talking about? <laughs> So um, then we contacted the, the, the people who, who owned it with the fare we were using, and they said they would take it off. We had this heavy net made up. So we had this net made up, and we did the shot um, with the technocrine, which is fine because you see it spinning from the mm. top because it's open. But, then, but there was no way we could... And then we went inside, and as it was beginning to spin, we, we did a little bit of the scene with the kids getting in position and getting faster. Then... We had to stop it spinning. So how are we going to shoot that? So then, I worked out with my gaffer, and a fabulous gaffer on it, Russ Engels. I've done six movies with just the best guy I've ever worked with, and um, I mean he's an old timer like me too. Um, and we put four um, four sixty foot condors up um, with um, HMI heavy HMI pars coming in, like the sort of HMI spots, and they would come down. And I got some rock and roll lights, and they were constantly moving, and the paths were moving, so the, the thing was stationary, but we moved the lights through so it looked like the sunlight going through, and that was, and it worked. You don't know it's not moving. I was very wow. proud of that. Wow. That's so, incredible. Yeah. And all without visual effects. What was your gaffer's oh. reaction to yeah, well, this? It, it was great. It was wonderful. <laughs> 
you know, I, he, I came up with the rock and roll lights, and he said, well, put some pars in there too, because they're very, very powerful. Mm. And then it, as, as they swung through the, the net that was on, you saw shadows, so it really looked like it was moving. Oh, wow. my gosh. That's amazing. Brilliant. <laughs> Do you want to take the next question? No, go for it. Um, okay, so uh, we have Bart Marcioni in the studio, who is a horror filmmaker, and he described his love of horror beginning when he saw Friday the 13th when he was nine. And I was wondering, uh, you've done a lot of horror, and some of your best work is considered uh, from the horror genre. When did you fall in love with horror? I've always liked horror. Yeah? Uh, yeah, I remember seeing as a kid, I was petrified. I saw um, The House of Wax. That frightened the oh, life out of me. Yeah. That really frightened the life and I I climbed in the cinema window because I couldn't afford to go in. All <laughs> <laughs> the back, the window at the back, we, my mates and I used to climb in just in North London. <laughs> and I was petrified. I didn't sleep for days after that, you know. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and Peeping Tom was another one. Peeping Tom. So you, so okay. I want to talk about um, Don't Look Now. The opening scene, which I just saw for the first time a couple of weeks ago, my friend sat me down, showed it to me. He was like, "You have to see this. It's amazing." Um, it is perhaps one of the most frightening scenes in cinematic history. It's uh, mostly built upon suspense, which I like a lot. Right. And I wonder, uh, going into it, is that a, something that you guys storyboarded? Were you 100% positive what you're going for? or No, Nick, Nick Rowe, we didn't storyboard or do shot lists or anything. Ever? Nick, Nick is not, no, never. Not that. <clears throat> I've never worked on many movies where we've done shot lists, actually. Or storyboards. Wow. Um, you always storyboard an action sequence because that's very important. Sure. You know? um, but uh, no, I mean, what we, I mean, like, you know, everybody has a different way of working. Like, um, you know, the, I mean, because I don't know about, I've never, I mean, I, well, you have to teach shot listings film school because it's mm. very important to get the student into that, you know. Um, but I mean, I like to work with directors that when we start a new scene, you know, they come onto the set with just him and I and the actors and maybe the script or the script girl or, you know, continuity sitting in the corner. Let the director wander around for five, ten minutes with the actors and sort of talk about it and this, and then we'll start to block it. And then we'll block the scene and then write the shot list then, as opposed to doing it weeks beforehand, you know. Wow. So with a scene that's so... Uh emotionally intense and, and essentially and actually setting up the story uh, how did you go into it for uh, Don't Look Now? Well I mean it's you know Nick Rowe that particular, he's a very organic director and he you know if you you know he wants actors to bring something to the story mm. um, and we struck very lucky we found this beautiful farm with a pond it was idyllic you know just outside London and we did that uh, we shot that in four days um, all the all the London stuff in four days um, and it was the weather was incredible. It was it was a beautiful sunny. All the days there were beautifully sunny, but the sun at that time is very very low, so it's always backlit and just stunning. And and you know it was cold, so it had that Christmas to it, crispness to it. Um, the hardest part was it was very emotional to shoot with that little girl mm. because um, you know I went into the water with Donald in a wetsuit. Mm. It was so cold with a little. Ariflex 2C, and he he comes running into the water and goes under. And then, you know, we, we'd had the actress who you you just see running around with a doll and a little red jacket. But then came the point where Donald brings the kid up, and we did that in in it's on the farm in that we found a like a tank, a metal tank. That's why it's a little bit dark because we filled it full of water. And we, the little girl went under and bore it up, but it was really, 
it was sort of terrifying, sort of, you know, hearing Nick say, well, you know, you've got to pretend you're dead. And, you know, and, and it just, but it worked, it worked beautifully, but it was a very, very emotional scene. It was very tough, very tough scene. Is there a film that you've seen that you wish you would have shot? Oh, lots of them. Lots of them. <laughs> Give me some examples. Oh, my God. I, I mean, I wish I'd have shot, uh, I don't know, I mean, just so many of them. I just, it just... I don't know. It's a lot. No, I don't have any. I mean, I think my, I don't ever necessarily have any favourite movies. I've got favourite movies. My favourite movie of all time is Alphaville. Jean-Luc Godard's Alphaville. I just love that movie. I've never seen this. Oh, movie. it's a fantastic movie. Absolutely fantastic. I have to check it Alphaville. out. Alphaville. What's it about? Uh, it's about. A, it's about. Um, it's a. It's a sort of a. It's a science sort of almost science fiction movie. It's just fantastic. And Eddie Constantine's in it. Remade his career. Um, it's a wonderful movie. Love Alphaville. Let's check that out. It's very old. I think it made in about 1960. I don't know, maybe early, mid-60s. Mm-hmm. And I shot a movie for Goddard, which was wonderful, too. He was, well, it was, after Alphaville, was one of my favourites. He's made some amazing movies, you know, Breathless, mm-hmm. you know, Band Apart. Um, but I shot a movie for Goddard with the Rolling Stones and the British version of the Black Panthers, which is really weird. Um, and it got just slated, but you know, it's had a resurgence because um, this last summer we they did a 4K restoration of that from the wow. original negative, and I was over there just before Christmas doing the final color correction. And now critics are saying it's not probably the complete piece of garbage they thought it was. <laughs> and they're seeing more into it. You know, <laughs> that's actually an interesting point. So you just said they brought you back in. So is that yeah. what they do? Is when they're remaking something or revamping well, it? Well, they, if they can get hold of the, the cinematography, sure. when it's restorations, it's hard because their budgets are so small. You know, but usually for DVDs, I'm when we do a color correction of a movie, um, I will do a pass. You know, obviously pass of the. Pass of the digital, digital cinema packs, and then do another pass of the pass of the Blu-ray, and they'll always the DP will always be there for that, yeah. you know. But when they remaster something, um, but I've got pretty good relationships with those people, so they they you don't get paid for it. They gave me an air ticket, but it was nice to go oh. to London twice. So. Nice, okay, yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your approach just uh, from an artistic perspective. Grace Coddington, who's an editor for Vogue, is like one of my idols. And she has this theory that if you are a photographer of any kind, you can never close your eyes. She's like, because you'll miss inspiration. It's it's everywhere. And so that's kind of her approach. And I was wondering uh, what inspires right. you. She's absolutely yeah. right. I mean, everything, life inspires me, you know. Um, and it's, it's, it's all changing now. It's so different. You know, everything is so different. Everything is sort of easier but harder I mean uh, and I say that doesn't make any sense but I say that because it's you know this the, the cameras the digital cameras are so fast now you know um, they're very easy to use very simple to use um, and it's also harder because sometimes you know you've got to get rid of the natural light you know uh, to make it what you want I mean a lot of the low budget films just shoot with natural light because that's has to be that way because of money but sometimes you don't want all that natural light you want to you want to control it you want to you know you're you're as a cinematographer dictating what the what the audience will see in that frame when's the last time you shot on film last time i shot on actually last time i shot on was a couple of um it was a few years ago i shot the the second the third wimpy kid on film. okay yeah, yeah, do you have that. a preference i like digital i mean i do like i mean film is better but i tell you what i like it because you know we used to before, you know, before digital intermediates came in, that is where you shoot on, on film and they scanned it into a computer and they cut and did everything on the computer and colour corrected and then you made a new negative. 
Before, before digital intermediates came in, everything was a photochemical process. You know, you shot on film, you, you printed the negative, you saw the dailies, and you, uh, the dailies you saw the next day at lunch, or if you were in a studio, or you go to a screening room in the evening, and you actually saw what you were doing. Once we got into the digital intermediates, um, dailies suddenly started to appear on really horribly compressed DVDs, and you didn't see anything. And then sometimes they would put them up online, you know. So when it, when it went full digital, I loved it because I got two fantastic, fantastic monitors, even though it's in a different colour space, it's in Rec. 709. Um, you know, it was absolutely fantastic. You can, you can judge things on that, you know, uh, and then you've got a DIT with you, so you're colour correcting as you go. It's wonderful, so I rather like that, you know. Is it the experience of it that you like, or is it just knowing for sure? Because I know a lot of times when you get, you're watching your dailies, you're like, Maybe we've got to reschedule another day to go back and shoot these things. But with digital, it's kind of more immediate. You can maybe make adjustments. Well, the you can make some. I mean, all you're doing, you're, the only adjustments you're making when you're shooting is it's not baked in. It's only metadata. So I'm color correcting as I go with the DIT. And that metadata just goes to the to whoever's going to do the dailies because they've still got to do dailies. Mm. Um, and they'll make it look like we made it. But also, um, it's a starting point for when you do your DI, but it's not burnt in. You know, studios wouldn't like that. They'd hate that if it burnt in. I'm wondering how you feel about, especially some of your, uh, you know, maybe your more prized work. Do you have a preference for screens? I know some people are like, please don't watch my movies on a phone. Like, that's not how they were shot for. It's not the right medium. Well, you shouldn't watch movies on a phone. <laughs> I mean, you should, I mean, go to the cinema. Movies go to the cinema, you know, television. Cinema. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I watch DVDs on television, but I mean, if I want to, movies, I go to the cinema. Love the cinema. Martin Scorsese uh, recently wrote an article proclaiming it was the theater was dying, that uh, the cinema was dying. I think it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it is. I mean, um, you know, uh, I mean, you can get anything on TV now. People are just, it's uh, you know, cinemas are very expensive, really. I mean, if you yes. go out and you can take your wife and a couple of kids and you know, and some popcorn and some sodas. I mean. It's more expensive than going to Wolfgang Pucks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. And, and everything is online. So, I mean, I just went out and bought myself a 65-inch OLED, OLED television for about 4000 oh, wow. But it's fantastic. It's like being in the cinema. It's lovely. But still, the cinema is the best thing. You know. Can yeah. you feel when a movie that you're working on is going to be a hit? That's hard to say. I mean, um, I think you you got to think it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. But you, who knows what it's going to be a hit? I mean, I mean, it should be. I mean, I've worked on so many movies. It all start off to be fantastic, and something, mm-hmm. something along the line goes wrong, and they turn out to be stinkers, you know. Oh. Um, but I knew we had something special with the man who fell to earth, and also with Don't Look Now. Um, you know, th- th- those were special movies, you know. Um, uh, th- but there's been so many. I mean, and most of them have done pretty well, you know. I think. I mean, would but what is what is a hit? I mean, is it a hit because it makes a lot of money, or because yeah. it gets good reviews, or because it's, you know, um, I mean, I'd like to reshoot every single shot I've ever done except for one. And which shot is that? Well, it's a close-up of Julie Christie and um, Don't Look Now, mm-hmm. where we were doing towards the end, we were doing the sequence where she's in in the barge going across the Grand Canal mm-hmm. with the coffin and the two sisters. Um, and we had three or four cameras set up on the Grand Canal, and it was a very mi- sort of sunny but misty day. And um, 
the last minute Nick said quick get the, get the Ari to jump in the boat with Julian cover yourself up and do a shot up of her like that so I got in the boat and lens on the two seat Ari and she had a black hat and a black jacket um, or coat um, very red lips and dark eye shadow and I got a meter out and there was we were in a side alley you know so it was, there was no dark at all so it was so dark so I just opened up the lens as far as I could and shot it and we came out and the shot was great and everything else was great and as would happen in those days when you shot on film you would call the labs the next morning and talk to the the grader who did the, the you know the nighttime grader call him at six seven o'clock in the morning and we called Rome and I said you know how's it because we, our stuff was being processed in Rome I said how is it he said, oh it's all great you know in his Italian accent he said everything's beautiful the Grand Canal and all that. <laughs> he said but you can't use the close-up of Julie Christie I said wait well, it's so overexposed we can't bring it down it's useless I said, it doesn't matter either. well when we saw it it was fantastic because it was so overexposed because she was in black the blacks were there the red lips were there and her dark eye shadow and her eyes were there and the skin became totally alabaster it was fantastic perfect for the scene now I have to say I wouldn't have shot it that way <laughs> I, mean, I don't know why I would never, it would never have occurred to me but that's the one shot I wouldn't want to do again because wow. everything else you can do a little bit better it's a happy accident yeah, yes, yeah, there's some great accidents in, in movie making Absolutely. Um, I was wondering, do you think of The Man Who Fell to Earth as a surrealist film? Yeah, I guess so. Probably now, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, it was way, way ahead of its time when that came out. I mean, and um, it got butchered here in America. Did it? I think it was Company Fire that distributed it. They held it up for like four years. They absolutely butchered the movie. Hmm. And it never, never really came to true light here until... Um, the DVD came out with the director's cut, you know. Yeah. But now everybody loves the movie. They're seeing things in it that, you know, because I mean, it's really, it sort of foreshadowed a lot of what's happening um, in major countries around. The corporations are running the country. That's about a corporation that gets out of control that the government couldn't handle. You know, I mean, it's one of the, one of the premises. You know. What um, was it like working with Bowie? It's wonderful. Yeah. He, um, I mean, I, you know. I can't imagine anybody else playing that role. And he was absolutely perfect. He'd just come off of... I mean, the, the original... Nick originally wanted Michael Crichton, the author, oh, okay. to play that. Who was, I don't think he'd ever acted, but he was very tall and very, very skinny and sort of looked sort of weird, unworldly. And, you know, um, but he, he said he would do it, then he didn't. And then Nick had seen um, a sort of documentary about Bowie. What was it called? Crack, cracked pop star or crack something. I forget what it's called. Mm. Or cracked actor. And um, Bowie was on a massive um, drug addiction, alcohol, everything. And he was just coming off of that. So Nick offered him the part he accepted. So when he came there, and he was just about holding it together. Wow. And Nick didn't really direct him that much. He directed all the others because Bowie, he left, sort of left in many cases Bowie to his own resources to sort of get through. And he sort of glided through that movie in a very, very fragile state, which was fantastic. Nick was clever enough and brilliant enough to see that, you know, let that go. I've heard some cinematographers say that they have uh, close relationships with the actors, whereas the director is directing the actor, the cinematographer is usually the one right in the actor's face. Do you find that to be true? Do you interact with the actors at all? 
Yeah, I mean, I've, 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 most, a lot of them all still remain great friends, you know. Um, my, unfortunately, the, the ones I've... Well, three of the closest were just, you know, passed on, you know. But, um, but I mean, uh, yeah, and I've had a great relationship with actors. I mean, that's very important, you know. I mean, I think that... Um, you know, because especially nowadays, because directors are generally in another room or somewhere away from the camera. I mean, which is very bizarre to me. I mean, mm. even though we're digital, I like to work with directors who are right by the camera, not looking through a monitor 10, mm-hmm. 20 feet away. Actors like that. Actors like the director to be there. I mean, in the old days, when we were shooting on BNCs, you know, or, or film, before there were reflex cameras, I mean, you know, the, the actor, the director would be peering over the operator's shoulder, looking through the, the parallax viewfinder. And the script girl would be right under the camera, and everybody was right there. And, you know, um, it's fantastic. But I mean, to be some directors are in other rooms, which is really bizarre. Sending notes in via radio to the AD to tell the actors actors hate that. Oh my goodness, that sounds um, very impersonal. Well, it's just, right? it is. It's very impersonal. But I mean, um, so I, you know, uh, when I work with Peter Maddock a lot, you know, he and, and David Bowers too, this uh, last director I worked with. I mean. Um, they have little handheld monitors, and they're, but they're right by the camera looking at the monitor. You know. After all these years in this industry, what is it that still excites you? Well, I just, it's, I just love it. It's not, it's not. I think that um, it's the only time I'm really happy with actually. I sort of, I shouldn't <laughs> say that, but I mean, um, but I mean, it's just, it's a very exciting job. And I, it's not a job, actually. It's a way of life. I mean, it's all I've ever done. I've mean, worked on movies. I've never done anything else, you know, other than right. a year of running around London with cans of film. Um, and it's wonderful. You be, you know, and the great thing is when you travel, you go abroad. I mean, it's not like going on vacation for two weeks. You're there for months and months and months, and you work with local crews, you know. I mean, I sh- shot one movie in... Um, in uh, uh, where were we? We were in... Um, Prague and Slovakia and Mexico with a with um, a whole uh, Czech crew it was fantastic. No, no one spoke anything. It was wonderful, <laughs> wonderful, and the wonderful crews. You get to know people. You get to know the culture and the, and, and the way people live. It's great. It's been it's been a great uh, great business. I've been very lucky. That sounds wonderful. I'm curious. Um, after having such a long career, what brings you to teaching? Well, I mean, I guess really it's a sort of Listen, I was helped so much as a young man. I was taken under the wings by directors, by certainly by Nick Rogue. The three major cinematographers that really took, took care of me were Nicholas Rogue, John Wilcox, who was a brilliant cinematographer, absolutely brilliant. But, I mean, he never got his just dues, you know. Mm. Uh, and Freddie Young, obviously from Chicago, um, and John Schlesinger's a director. Um, and they all helped me and pushed me and, and great, gave me great guidance. And uh, I couldn't have done anything I've done without that help so you know teaching is really like giving back you know um, and you know because one of the things is that you know we can we can help them when you've had a long career you you know one of the things that's very sort of in, in many ways very hard to teach is actually what it's like on a movie set you know mm-hmm. I mean that's really hard I mean because when we're, 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 we're the, the students are doing their practicums or their workshops they're with a crew of eight or nine or ten if they're lucky you know or twelve um, and then suddenly you get thrown onto a movie set with a, a small crew of 130 you know um, and that's why I was so happy to have taken um, Jeremy Harris with me to uh, to Atlanta Jeremy uh, Harris was a student of yours at NAFA? He was but he was an, an alum I couldn't take a student but I took an alum oh gotcha and I got him 
you know, he got a rather grand title as the assistant to the director of photography. And I got him paid on the production. Couldn't, you know, and, and um, he just learned a great deal. I had him watching, going with the riggers, uh, with the rigging grips, with the rigging electricians. I had him out in the second unit, had him out in the stunt unit. So he's a whole, you know, and those are things that can't, uh, are hard to teach. So any time I do a movie, I'll always take a student with me. That's so cool. Um, and then I guess we just have one more question for you. And that is, what do you hope your legacy to film is? Oh, God. <laughs> I like to end on a light note. Um, well, I guess I, I, just, I don't think I'm going to leave a legacy here. I mean, just I'll, I'll carry on shooting up there or down there, wherever ah, I go. I love that. Take a, I take a camera Amazing. with me in the coffin. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, I know that uh, the Cinematique is uh, doing a review of some of your movies called Do Look Now? Don't Look... What? I think... I'm trying to find the title. I just had it. It's. I think it's... Uh, Tony Richard in person or something like that. Okay. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about yeah. that? Well, it's, that, 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 I think that came about with um, with um, the man who fell to earth being released in this country. Um, and the American, the, the American Cinematic Art, if they could show it, and then they decided when they, I guess, looked at some of the other stuff I did, they wanted to do a, a sort of tribute, which is wonderful. I feel very proud of that. I'm very lucky. So they're going to do The Man Who Fell to Earth on on uh, Friday the 10th of February and I'll do a Q&A afterwards and then on Saturday they're going to do um, Don't Look Now and then Candyman and I'll do a Q&A in between nice. what a great double feature yeah, oh my yeah, gosh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, Don't Look I mean, a lot of people a lot of people get very scared by Don't Look Now because there's, there's such a, a, a great deal of realism about that I mean some people call it a psychological horror I would, I would be more inclined to call it a psychological thriller Okay, yeah, Those definitely. Those are the best. Yeah. It, it is a, a haunting film that kind of does not leave you immediately. It's definitely one of those and, that follows you around afterwards. And also, uh, considering it was shot in 1972, it mm-hmm. really holds up. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a it's sort of universal story. Yeah. I mean, uh, Antichrist, and watching it afterwards, you can see a lot of inspiration right. taken from uh, Don't Look Now. Um, so if you guys want to check out those screenings, which I strongly encourage you to do, they're amazing films, and then you could hear from the man himself and maybe ask him, uh, some questions yourself. Uh, you can go to Aero Theaters. Uh, it's at one three two eight Montana Avenue in Santa Monica. I'm sure tickets are available online. They are. Um, yes. Twelve dollars. Look at that. This, <laughs> where are you getting twelve dollars, guys? Amazing. Um, Tony, thank you so much it's for coming in. This was wonderful. Pleasure. I really appreciate it. Um, come back next week. We're gonna have Twinkie Bird, who is casting executive extraordinaire. Uh, she's wonderful, and she's also gonna tell you guys about her new short film and her trip to Cannes. Um, so we'll see you guys back here next week at the Knife Hour. Thanks. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.